Well, this first talk that I'm going to share with you is on the call to missions. And to kind of prime us uh, for this, I want us to think about what is it that moves people to want to go to share the gospel in very costly ways? What is it that moves people to share the gospel with people who've never heard it before in very costly ways? And to get us thinking about that, I want to tell you the story of John Patton. No relation. In fact, there's only one T in his last name. (laughs) I'm Pastor Patton with two T's. And this is uh, an adaptation of a narrative that John John Piper shared. Um, I want you to think about this man's story. John Piper was, uh, sorry, John Patton was born in Scotland in 1824. So this is about 200 years ago. And in 1839, so when this man was about 15 years old, um, in 1839, two missionaries named John Williams and James Harris went from England to a set of islands that are known as the New Hebrides, which is to the east of Australia. So you picture Australia, and then there's way out in the ocean, these uh, set of islands called the New Hebrides. And these two men, John Williams and James Harris, were eaten by cannibals within minutes of setting foot on the shore of the New Hebrides. Then, in 1842, another team went to one of the other islands there in the New Hebrides and saw amazing fruit with all 3,500 people on that island coming to Christ. So you can imagine that. <laughs> one, one island they go... And the guys like die instantly and are eaten by cannibals. The, the next island they go to, the, another team goes to, all the people on the island come to know Jesus. Now, that's the context then for John Patton, who had a thriving ministry by the 1850s, um, working among poor and unchurched people there in Scotland. So he's a minister of the gospel. He's working among poor people. He's seeing tremendous fruit from his ministry, and yet he felt called to minister to the people of the New Hebrides. He was hearing these stories about those two guys who went and then were killed, and then these other guys who went and saw tremendous fruit, and he was was moved. He was moved by the idea that there are these islands where literally nobody has ever heard about Jesus. And so he started talking with people he knew about his desire to go and to serve, and there's one man, a Mr. Dixon, who said to him, and this is a Christian man, okay? He's saying back to Mr. Patton, he's saying, you will be eaten by cannibals. And to this, Patton replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our great Redeemer. Pretty amazing statement. Come on in, everybody. Glad you're here. There's plenty of seats up front here if you want. That takes a lot of, uh, a lot of courage to say that, right? Here's somebody saying, you're going to be eaten by cannibals. He says, well, you're going to be eaten by worms, <laughs> right? And... 
I want, however I am eaten, whether by cannibals or by, or by worms, to be serving my great Redeemer. Another man said to John Patton, Look, you have a very fruitful ministry here in Scotland. Why would you go overseas to something, do something uncertain when you have certain fruit right here in Scotland, right where you are? Why would you go to a place where you could possibly labor for years and not see any fruit when you have fruit right where you are living here? And Patton wrote, he said, the opposition was so strong from nearly all and many of them warm Christian friends that I was sorely tempted to question whether I was carrying out the divine will or only some headstrong wish of my own. This also caused me much anxiety and drove me close to God in prayer. So can you imagine that? Here's this guy who feels, I, want, I feel the call to go to these faraway islands, you know, west of Australia, literally the other side of the world from England. All virtually all of his Christian friends, including like older, wiser Christians, are saying, don't do it. You'll be eaten by cannibals. Don't do it. You'll, you'll leave behind a fruitful ministry for something that's possibly quite unfruitful. And he's wondering to himself, is this just my crazy idea? And what's he doing? He's praying about it. And nevertheless, despite all this opposition, in 1858, John Patton, at age 33, set sail from Scotland for the New Hebrides with his wife. So he's relatively recently married. And eventually, so obviously a long trip. You're not going to make this in one, like, uh, you know, airplane ride in a day or something. Um, within, you know, many months later, he arrives on the island of Tana, which is in the New Hebrides. And within months of arriving on this island, his wife gave birth to his, their first child, a baby boy. So imagine that. Here you are on this island. You don't know anybody. Your wife gives birth to a baby. It's not like there's doctors there or anybody to help you. Um, this little baby boy is born. And within weeks, both his wife and his baby died of an island fever. And he buried them with his own hands. He wrote, the Lord sustained me, but for the Lord Jesus and the fellowship that he vouchsafed to me there, in other words, the fellowship he guaranteed to me there, I must have gone mad and died beside that lonely grave. So he arrives on the island within months, his wife gives birth, and then both his wife and his baby have died. Then he faces many more severe challenges from there. Severe fever 14 times. So you know what it's like to have the flu? Imagine having that like 14 times, one, one time after another, <laughs> while you're on this island where basically your immune system hasn't encountered any of the diseases there, and so you're just getting pummeled over and over again. In addition, it says, and this is in his words, a wild chief followed me around for four hours with his loaded musket, and though often directed toward me, God restrained his hand. I spoke kindly to him and attended to my work as if he had not been there, fully persuaded that my God had placed me there and would protect me until my allotted task was finished. And so the islanders, they were not happy to see this guy. There's this instance I just described to you where this guy is falling around with a loaded musket. <laughs> then there's all these other times where he very close encounters with death. These are, these are not friendly natives. 
countless other close calls until four years later. Think about this. This guy's been there for four years. Without a single convert, he manages to escape on a ship that landed just in time, right as the villagers were mounting to get um, about to attack him and kill him. Now, what would you be feeling after that experience? You've lost your wife and baby. You've been like wrecked with disease. <laughs> you've you've had guys like basically loading, having loaded musket pointed at you, and pursuing you. Probably wouldn't want to go back there, right? Yet instead of giving up, he went back. And he went with his second wife. He got married again. His second wife, who was to stay with him for decades, in the course of which the entire island, uh, this is actually a nearby island that he ended up going to, um, the entire island of Aniwa and many of the neighboring islands of the New Hebrides came to Christ. And to this day, many in those islands still follow the Lord Jesus. In fact, when I was at Wheaton College, um, there was a young lady there who um, was an undergraduate at Wheaton College, and she was from um, the island of Vanuatu, which is right nearby there. And um, her parents were serving there among the church of the New Hebrides, um, a thriving church that still is there to this day because of the relentless efforts of John Patton. And so what I want to ask you guys is this. Not every missionary experience is going to be like John Patton, okay? Not every missionary experience is of this nature of, like, constant threat and challenge. And yet, every missionary experiences something of the leaving behind of the known, the familiar, and going into this great unknown, where you don't know whether you're going to see fruit in your lifetime or not. You don't know whether you're going to experience grave danger or persecution or not. You don't know what kind of reception you're going to get, and you don't know what kind of trials, right? Every missionary has to experience at least that. The going from the known and the certain into the unknown. What is it that propels us to make that step? What is it? Well, let me share with you what propelled John Patton. At one point when he was in great danger, he writes this. I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but yesterday. I heard the frequent discharge of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches, as safe as in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did the Lord draw near to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. He was alone as far as other allies, right? But not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, and to enjoy his consoling fellowship. It was the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, his love for him, his fellowship with him, that drove him to, to bring the Lord Jesus to others. And what I want to ask you all is what, motivate, what should motivate us? It's going to be that same thing. It's going to be 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we, as we start into um, talking about the call of God, I want us to remember that at the heart of all that we're going to talk about is the Lord Jesus and his work for us. We're going to talk about first God's mission. God's mission. What is the mission of God? God himself in the world. Then we're going to talk about God's call, how he invites us into his mission for the world. And then we're going to talk about how we ought to respond. So, first talk about God's mission. And just to to start you guys thinking about the fact that we are in, in the course of history, the most epic missionary story ever. It is the missionary story of God himself. God is the great missionary God. He is the God who comes and invests in a people who are far from him and pursues them. Imagine this. I want you guys to imagine this scenario. Imagine that you are a nobleman or noblewoman in medieval times, and you have rule over this entire village. So you're the noble who's in charge of this entire huge village, and you're a good ruler. You support them. You send doctors to their sick. You use your wealth, in other words, to bless these people, and you use your know-how to encourage this village. You, you send, when there, there are people hungry in your village, you send food to them from your supplies. Um, you give them jobs and help them to be self-sufficient. You render decisions when there's conflict and you're the judge. You render just decisions. You do everything that a good ruler should do and it costs you a lot. Like you, you have to give a lot of your time, energy, thought, resources to this village, right? Imagine that's you. And then beyond all reason, this village revolts against you. And they they say that you are a control freak. They say that you are the problem. You're a tyrant. And you're like, what on earth? Like, what did I do? Right? And as part of this revolt, they seize your only son and they put him to death. Now, how would you feel? How would you feel towards that, that city? How would you feel towards that village? Here you are. You've, all you've been is empowering and supporting, and yet they are defying you and even killing your own child, making all these baseless accusations. This is the story of our world, right? This is what God has experienced from the hands of all humanity. God, the creator of all, the sustainer of all, he's the one who the world then revolts against and says, we don't want anything to do with you. You're such a control freak. You're holding stuff back from us. That was what Satan's temptation was, right? Genesis 3 is, oh, God's withholding from you this one tree. Why does he say you can't eat of this one tree? He must be holding something back from you. And so rather than returning thanks to the God who created them, Adam and Eve rebelled against them. And how would you feel if you were that guy, that noble person, that noble woman or nobleman who had been doing everything for this village and they put to death your child? Like, wouldn't you be like, okay, now I'm sending in the troops, right? And yet what did God do when humanity fell into sin? He didn't send in the troops. He sent his own beloved son to come and to save us. Think about this. 
This is a world that is wrecked by sin. And, and we just have to wrap our minds around this if we're going to understand the kind of heart of the God who is the missionary God who sends a rescue mission to this world. This is a world where, just to take a few examples, Esau was willing to sell his inheritance in the kingdom of God for a pot of stew. He's like, this is how much I value God's redemptive work in this world. I'll gladly trade it just so I can fill my belly this one day. This is a world where, to take a more modern example, a young man gets a woman pregnant out of wedlock, and when she delivers the baby so that they can have more money for drugs, they abandon the child in a public restroom and just leave it there. That's an actual story um, that I just read recently in the news. This is a world where friends spread gossip behind friends' back, where people are coveting fancier cars and all this stuff rather than pursuing the Lord. This is, this is a world where most people consider God to not even be worth a fragment of their time or attention, like God is irrelevant to everything. This is a world where one of Jesus' friends, Judas, sold him for 30 pieces of silver, and where his best friend, Peter, denied him out of fear. And when we start to understand just how deeply broken and messed up this world is, and we just remind ourselves of that, isn't it then amazing that when God looks down on this world, he doesn't despise us? Isn't it amazing that you know what God decides to do? He decides to rescue us. Mark chapter 6, I'll just share with you, what does Jesus say to himself when he sees this crowd of people just wandering in the wilderness? It says, Jesus looked and he had compassion on them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's what God sees and that's what God feels when he looks at a broken world. He says, they are like sheep without a shepherd. And that was the, the people of the land of Israel. But he has compassion not just on Israel, but on the nations too. Isaiah 19, this is, the, this is the missionary God who we serve. Isaiah 19, verses 24 and 25 says this, In that day, the day of restoration, when God's going to do a great saving work, in that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. Think about that. Egypt, the ancient enemy of God's people going way back. Assyria, in Isaiah's day, the big, bad, you know, enemy nation. He says, God, God's going to say, says, I'm going to make Israel to be a third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands and Israel, my inheritance. Now just think about that. Here's Egypt, the, the, the nation that like, you know, Pharaoh tried to destroy Israel, right? And here's Assyria, who, where they really did destroy the northern kingdom of, um, of Israel and, you know, destroyed all their cities, sacked them and, and took them away into exile, killing and butchering the people. God looks at all these Assyrians and he says, I'm going to make them the work of my hands. I'm going to save them. That's what it means that God is a missionary God. 
He is a missional God. God looks at the brokenness of this world, and do you know what he feels? He feels compassion. And he sends his son on a rescue mission for the whole earth because he's the God who loves his enemies. And just try to get your head around this. Like, Imagine you only have one kid. And imagine that like these people, these thugs or whatever, kill your only kid because they're angry with you for no good reason. Like, How would you feel? We wouldn't be tempted to, like, oh, I want to bless those people. Right? That would not come naturally to us. And yet God says, that's what I want to do. I want to rescue these people. And so he sent his son. A son who, if he didn't come, if Jesus didn't come, all those people would perish in their sins. And he sent his son to die on the cross for them, for us, so that those who should have died... Right? That's what should happen when, when you like murder somebody. You should be put to death, right? God said, I'm going to make it so my son experiences the punishment that the rebels should have experienced. And so, Jesus is the first human missionary. He is the first missionary. He left, think about this, he left the comfort of his father's side to come down and proclaim not just good news to the lost, but to proclaim himself as a salvation for the lost. He, he left comfort, the glory of the Father, where he was in perfect joy and harmony with the Father and the Spirit in all eternity, and he came down and he was hungry, he was thirsty, he was misunderstood, he was accused of false things, he was beaten, he was put to death all because he wanted to rescue us. And that is the mission of God. God wanting to take out of this world a broken, there's all these broken people he's going to take out of this world and he's going to make for himself a people who are rescued from sin and who actually love him and are made to do what he made them to be. So that's the mission of God. God looks at this world and what is the great purpose of this present age? that is stretching back all the way, all the way to Genesis 3 and the, the, our first parents being cast out of the garden. Ever since then, God has been on a mission. He's been on the rescue mission, not just to save Israel, but to save the world. And that brings us then to this second point. God has a mission to rescue the world to bring out of this world his chosen ones from the four corners of the earth. And now you know what he's doing? Now that he's sent his son to atone for our sins, he is in the midst of gathering that people. He's in the midst of blessing not just his own people, Israel, but the nations. And so I want to talk with you about three gathering passages. These three gathering passages together give us a picture of what God is presently doing in this present age. So the first is Deuteronomy 30, verses 3 and 4. And if you want to turn there, we're going to talk about it a little bit. So Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 4. We're going to, we're going to talk about these uh, three gathering passages and see how it fills out our mission today. God's on a mission. He invites us into his mission. So God says, and he's envisioning now, even though this is the beginning of Israel's history and Moses is talking to them before they've even entered the land. Remember that? Remember, there's, they come out of Egypt, they're wandering in the wilderness, 
And then right before they enter the land, Moses gives the final, his like farewell speech before he dies. That farewell speech is Deuteronomy. And here, even before they enter the land, he says, I know when I die, you guys are going to sin against God and go apostate. And what happens when they go apostate? Well, look at verse 1. It says, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse. In other words, you've experienced the blessing of the land, but then you're going to rebel against him, and you're also going to experience the curse. And he says in verse 2 that you're going to be scattered to all the nations of the earth. God's going to scatter them from the land. And it says this, while they're in the land, the land where they've been sent away, they're going to turn back to God, it says. And then it says, verse 3, look at this. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where he himself, the Lord your God, has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. Get the sense of what God's saying? Here's Israel. They're going to be in the land for a while, but then they're going to sin. It's going to scatter them far away. That's what the Assyrians did, and that's what the Babylonians did, right? And he says, but that won't be the end of the story. Why is that? Because while you're out there scattered and you're thinking about all the sin and all the things that brought this terrible fate upon you, you're going to turn back to me. And when that happens, I'm going to gather you. Even if you're in the farthest part of the earth, I will gather you. And if you read in the rest of the Old Testament, you're thinking to yourself, okay, I, re- I hear about the, the scattering piece. I see, th- I see that they've gone away into the nations. I, I, you know, that's very clearly narrated in, in the end of Second Kings and stuff. But I don't really see this gathering thing. Like, yeah, there's a couple people who come back to the land in Ezra and Nehemiah, but not this like far-flung God gathering the people from all the remotest parts of the earth. Then you start to realize, hey, this hasn't actually happened yet as of the beginning of the New Testament. And then you realize, wow, Jesus has come to start this gathering. Jesus has come to begin gathering the lost sheep. Remember he says, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus has come to fulfill Deuteronomy 30. And yet, even at the end of Jesus' life, when he's been crucified, when he's raised from the dead, we still haven't seen Deuteronomy 30, 3 through 4, fulfilled. God's plan to gather from all the nations all his people. And so we read our next text. This is the next gathering text, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. God wants to gather his people from the far reaches of the world. Even if you're in the remotest part of the heavens, I will gather you back from there. Then we read Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And this is a familiar passage to you all, but when you read it in light of God's great mission to rescue the world, and when you read it in light of the promise that we just saw, Deuteronomy 30, it starts to ring in a bigger way. This is at the very end of Matthew, where Jesus, who's been raised from the dead, gathers his disciples in Galilee, and he says to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So who's going to do the gathering? The church. The entire church is given this commission to fulfill God's plan to gather his people from the farthest reaches of the earth. Think about this. God's Mission 
is to gather all his people. He's done the first step of saving us, dying for us, atoning for us. But now the gathering piece is what he wants his people to do. We will be his agents. And this is what we see in the beginning of the book of Acts. This is the third gathering text, if you just want to turn over there. Acts chapter 1. Jesus gives this statement that really is, it's called a programmatic statement. It, it's, this, it's the program for the book of Acts. Here's Jesus. He's raised from the dead. And his, his disciples gather and they ask him this question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, is now when Deuteronomy 30 going to happen? Is now when we're going to finally see the people coming back? He said to them, it's not for you to know times and seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. Now get this, in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So God is going to gather his people. He's going to start with Judea right there around Jerusalem. Then he's going to expand it to Samaria. In other words, northern kingdom people. Right? He's going to gather even, the, even those people who represent the, the lost ten tribes of the northern kingdom. But then he says, and even then, to the ends of the earth. That is God's mission, and we are now on that mission. You get to the end of the book of Acts. Has he reached to the ends of the earth? Well, they've gotten to Rome at least. But there's still a lot more places to go. So God, he's a missional God. He gives now his mission to us to finish. And he doesn't just say, oh, here's what you got to do. Good luck with that. <laughs> Did you notice what it says there in Acts 1? You, I will clothe you with power from on high. And that's the very next chapter, right? Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes. The Spirit of Jesus, the first missionary, comes down and equips his missionary church. So, Here's the big idea. God's a missionary God. He's going to the very ends of the earth to gather his elect. He sent his son as the first missionary to begin the gathering. But now we, united to the Son of God, are going to be finishing that mission of gathering the people. And it is a great work. It, was the, it is the great work that will continue to happen until Jesus returns. Like This is what all of history is waiting for. We're hurtling towards a climax. Like, you know, the, the climax of the world isn't like some awesome like movie you've been waiting for to come out or <laughs> whatever the thing is you're most looking forward to. This isn't Christmas, right? <laughs> like the climax of the world is the nations coming to Jesus. And that will take place through the work of the church. And now this brings us to the final point. How will we respond to this great mission? God's wanting to gather all the people from all the nations of the earth. He's wanting to make them his disciples. He's going to continue relentlessly sending people out until he's got everybody coming back, worshiping him in love. And by the way, when we think about the people coming to Jesus, it isn't just like getting saved and, and you know, beginning to follow Jesus. The vision is that then we will love the way we were created to love, that we will be disciples, that we will be loving husbands and wives, that we'll be loving parents, faithful students, hard workers, 
servant-hearted rulers, makers of beautiful Christ-exalting music, faithful worshipers, loving neighbors. In other words, making the whole earth to be a place that reflects God's glory and His will being done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the goal. That's the kingdom of God. Right? People loving God with all their lives. That's what missions is about. That's what God's seeking in this present world. That's what we're on a mission to accomplish. How will we respond? I just want to say, like, when you get how epic it is, what Jesus did for us, you can't just sort of sit back and say, well, that's cool. <laughs> you have to respond to his amazing love by taking up the call. And here are three, I believe I have three, yeah, three things um, that I want you to think about in terms of how we respond. First thing I want you to think about in terms of how we're going to respond is this. We need to recognize that there is still so much to do in this great epic mission that God has given. Just to take one example, the translation of the Bible. There are 7,300 or so languages being spoken worldwide today. Do you know how many have the Bible? 724. It's like one-tenth of the languages of the earth. Around 1.5 billion people, that is one in every five people on planet earth, do not have the Bible in the language of their hearts. Think about this. When you think about how much more there is to be done. There are about 660 million evangelical Christians in the world, and you always wonder how they generate these stats, but um, let's just say it's true. 660 million evangelical Christians. In other words, Christians that believe the Bible. About 8% of the world's population. You're like, wow, that's cool. But then think about this. Most of those Christians are concentrated in only a few nations of, of the earth. According to the Joshua Project, there are approximately 17,000 unique people groups in the world. 17,000 unique people groups, 7,000 of those are unreached. That is about 42% of the world's population is unreached. Where, In other words, you're never going to be hearing the name Jesus as you go through your life. You're never going to be around people who are going to tell you about Jesus. You will live your entire life and never hear the name of the Savior of the world. And the vast majority of these unreached people groups, 85% of these unreached people groups, exist in what's called the 1040 window. So you imagine two lines that go like this. Uh, the 10th degree of um, latitude and the 40th degree. And imagine those lines kind of go across like northern Africa, the Middle East, and then into um, like basically across Asia into China and the Southeast um, Asian countries like Vietnam, places like that. So 85% of those unreached people groups live in the 1040 window. Guess how much of the missionary work that's being done today is done among those people? Just 10%. So 10%, like 90% of the missionary work that's going on in the world is being done outside of that 1040 window where desperately we need people. When the English missionary Hudson Taylor came to China and became one of the first Westerners to penetrate into inland China with the gospel, one of the people he won to Christ asked him, how long has your nation known about the gospel? And Taylor replied, for hundreds of years, many generations. And the man replied, and you've only now, just now come to us? And he shared about his father who died 
never having heard the name of Jesus. So there's so much to be done. And the, the need is so urgent. Like in the process of me beginning this talk, do you realize there are countless people who have died in the past 45 minutes never having heard the name of Jesus? Perished in their sins. Right? Like this is urgent and this is life and death. We need to recognize there's still so much to do. Second point, each person here still needs to realize that the Great Commission is God's calling on you personally. The Great Commission is given to the whole church. We are all responsible to carry it out. Imagine the church is like an aircraft carrier. And the aircraft carrier's mission is go, like, take out this enemy base. Well, how many people in the aircraft carrier are actually going to fly the bombers that are going to take out that enemy base? Only 2% of the guys on the aircraft carrier are the pilots. But is everybody on the mission? Yeah, everybody's on the mission. Everybody's, you know, doing support staff, running the, you know, cooking the meals and all the stuff that the, makes it so that the carrier can do its mission. In the church, everybody's on the mission. What I wanted to share with you guys, just briefly, is here are the things everybody in the church needs to be doing for the sake of the great mission. Everybody is supposed to pray. This is an awesome book for prayer. This helps us to understand, it goes through each of the countries of the world and says, look, here are specific ways you can be praying specifically for the needs of, of the countries of the world. Colossians 4.3, pray that God may open us a door for the word. How will mission succeed when God acts? It's his mission. Pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out missionaries. Pray for the, those missionaries who've gone out to succeed in their work. Everybody, everybody is supposed to be praying for missions. Everybody's supposed to give. By giving financially, we are making it so that people have the plane tickets, have the salaries, have the wherewithal to get to where they need to be. And don't wait until you're older to start. Like, does, does, imagine a lot of you guys have part-time jobs, right? Or you're, just, you're soon going to. Start. As soon as you start making even like the smallest little sum, Start giving to your church. And when you give to your church, if it's a biblical church, you know, OPC churches are, are striving to be faithful to the mission, we're, we're giving what we receive part of that for the work of missions. And so by giving to your church, you are giving to the work of missions. Everybody's supposed to give. Everybody's supposed to care. So you should care, show that you care by like when there's a missions presentation or when, when people are sharing about their work or when a missionary comes back and you're like, you get a chance to be with them and encourage them. You need to care. And you need to care not just in terms of caring about the missionary, but you need to care about the fate of the lost to sense the urgency of people hearing and knowing the gospel. Everybody is supposed to pray, give, care, and everybody is also supposed to witness right where God has you. You don't have to go overseas to be a missionary. Uh, some churches, you may have seen this as you exit, it'll say, now entering the mission field. All the people around you here in America need the gospel too. You need, as 1 Peter 3.15 says, to have, be ready for hope, the hope that you have within you to share the reason for your hope. So everybody's involved in all those things. But, now this is the third point, some people are called in a special way to go. 
and this is the last thing I want to say, share with you briefly. Some people are called to go as missionaries overseas. And even that has a whole bunch of variety to it. Like there are people who are missionaries who like actually share the gospel and are, are talking with people who've never met Jesus before. There are missionaries who go and equip local people to be able to share about the gospel, like pastors, training local pastors overseas. There are people who are what are called missionary deacons who go as doctors or as guys who build uh, houses or tutors to help take care of the kids of the missionaries. Um, all of those are people who are going, right? And they are serving and making the mission a possible thing. Some are called to go long-term. Other people can go short-term. We're going to hear a presentation later over lunch about opportunities you guys have even in your teenage years to do short-term missions. And so here's my, here's my request for you guys. The big application for today from this, from this talk. Are you open to God's calling you to go? That's the big question I want you to ask yourself. Are you willing to... This is, this is how you begin to know whether God's calling you. Is if you're willing to pray this prayer. God, do you want me to go? If so, I'll go. Just make it clear to me. Jesus, you gave your life for me. I want to give my life now as an offering to you. I want to complete your great mission. I want to see the great harvest of people brought in. If you want me to go... Lord, show me. And he will. Or dear brother, Pastor Montgomery, he prayed that prayer once. If you want me to go, I'll go. And in time, God made it clear, yeah, I do want you to go. So are you willing to pray that? I want you especially to be open to it in these early days of your life. When you're young and the, the whole of your life is in front of you. And I want you to think about this not, I'm going to go if it becomes clear that I'm some sort of superhuman guy. John Patton, he was not some superhuman guy. He was just a faithful dude. My cousin was a missionary uh, for a long time in Japan and Costa Rica. And she would come back from the mission field and have all these people say, oh, I could never do what you do. And she was telling me in tears, like, I'm not some special person. Like, I don't really know the Japanese language very well. I don't know what I'm doing half the time here. I don't have any friends here. The church that we go to, I scarcely understand what's going on. It doesn't really feed me. Like, I, I, we're having babies here in Japan, and like, it's really, really hard. My family is literally on the other side of the world, and I miss them so, so terribly much. It is so, so hard. I'm just here because God wants me to be here. Not because she's like, I'm some superwoman. I'm just trying to be faithful. Brothers and sisters, are you willing to be faithful? Because if you are, God could use you in the most spectacular ways that you could, more than you could even begin to imagine. Think about some of these things. This is how I want to leave, this with you, leave you with this. Patrick's mission to Ireland. He goes to the, the, the island of Ireland, basically had no, no knowledge of the gospel. These guys are like raiding on, 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 um, on the shores of, of England, and Patrick himself was captured by raiders. And so he escapes and then learns, learns about Christ and goes back. The entire island of Ireland is transformed by the gospel, and they become the place where many manuscripts are kept when Europe descends into deep darkness 
And essentially, through the mission of Patrick and his bringing all these people to Christ in Ireland, Western civilization is preserved. Or here's another one. Billy Graham. When he died, there was a comic, a uh, little comic in World Magazine. And it showed Billy Graham at the gates of heaven. And it said, oh, Billy Graham, there are millions of people here who are really excited to see you. <laughs> right? God used this brother in an absolutely spectacular way. These are, these are people God was pleased to use in like amazing ways that they even saw in their own life. Many of you, when you go, you won't see amazing fruit in your lifetime. But you have this promise, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, that your labors for the Lord will not be in vain. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the great mission that you have initiated towards us. And indeed, we are heirs of that mission. The fact that we're here today is because people went forward in faithfulness to your mission and called people to repentance and faith. Lord, we pray that we would get on board this great mission of the church, the mission to make known the gospel, the glorious saving grace of Jesus to the far reaches of the world. And that, Lord, we would embrace this in the way that every Christian should embrace this mission, that we would pray, that we would give, that we would care, that we would witness. But that, Lord, you would also make us willing to consider that special call to actually be among those who actually go. And that, Lord, you would create a willingness there to be receptive to your call. And that, Lord, that willingness would be genuine so that when you do actually call us, we would go. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.